Matthew 26, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 17 through verse 25. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 17. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. (coughs) Now on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, You have said it. Let's now look to the Lord in prayer. For his blessing upon his word. Oh, gracious God in heaven, we uh, do praise you and thank you for your blessing upon us. We thank you for the truth of your holy word, that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And even as we come to this passage, uh, we pray that your spirit would give us understanding and insight. And that as your word goes forth in the power of the spirit, we do pray that it would find within our own hearts that rich, fertile soil. That will bring forth a great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Often when we think about the suffering and the humiliation that Jesus endured. We tend to only think about his death on the cross. And surely the, his crucifixion was really the height of his, of his suffering. And his, of course his resultant death is the one and only atoning sacrifice for our sins. Our salvation was accomplished by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the suffering and the humiliation of Jesus began way before his death. In fact, the birth of Jesus, not only the, the humble and low conditions into which he was, he was born, but even the reality of the incarnation itself was the beginning of Christ's suffering and humiliation on our behalf. And then later as he, as he grew and as he began his ministry, he, he'd be subject to temptation and, uh, and Satan's uh, Temptations. He would experience uh, some of the common uh, realities of living in a fallen and sinful world, even as we do. And so he would—he hungered, he thirsted, he was tired. But he also endured 
things like grief and sadness. Remember how he weeped, uh, how he wept when he heard of, of the death of Lazarus, or how he wept over the city of Jerusalem because uh, she was rejecting him, uh, the Messiah, and he knew that coming a judgment uh, would uh, would fall upon her. And of course, as we'll see in our passage this morning, another aspect of Christ's suffering was enduring the betrayal of a close friend. A betrayal that would then lead him to the cross. And yet the unfolding of this betrayal, or at least the first exposure of it, comes in the midst of an otherwise joyful celebration. A close, intimate meal with Jesus and his disciples as they celebrate God's faithfulness to deliver his people. Now it may seem rather strange that such treachery would be exposed at such a time. But as we'll see, the Last Supper that Jesus enjoys with his disciples becomes the perfect foreordained time for this treacherous scheme to be revealed. As it not only begins the increased intensity of his, of his suffering, but it also fits in with the theme of the supper as the redemption of God's people is near at hand. So in verse 17, it's now, we see that it's now at least one whole day, or partial two days has now passed since the plotting and the scheming of the religious leaders and, and uh, Judas uh, meeting with them. And remember that those religious leaders were committed to carry out their evil plot to kill Jesus, but they wanted to wait until after uh, the festival. But of course, when they were approached by Judas, who offered one of, one of Jesus' own disciples, who offered to betray Jesus, well, that was an opportunity too good for them to pass up. And so they certainly would look for any opportunity. But now it's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the disciples inquire about making preparations for the Passover. Well, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover are actually two separate events which God commanded uh, the Jews to celebrate. But since they were so closely connected, uh, they're often used interchangeably. And, and when you talk about the Passover, it involves the whole uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Or when they mentions the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it obviously includes the celebration of the Passover. Because they were joined together not only in, uh, in the timing that they happened, one right after the other, but also in their connection to the particular historical events um, and so we see that, for, the, for example, the Passover was instituted back when the Israelites were uh, slaves in Egypt. And we remember how God sent Moses to uh, deliver his people from, uh, from slavery and bondage in Egypt. But Pharaoh, of course, refused to let them go. And so God sent a series of plagues uh, upon the Egyptians. But as you remember, each time Pharaoh continued to harden his heart even more. Well, it was in preparation for the tenth and what would be the final plague. The Lord told Moses to charge the Israelites to take a lamb, uh, a, a lamb without defect, and kill that lamb. And then they were to uh, place the blood of the lamb 
uh, on their uh, on the outside of their doorposts, and so this would uh, would mark the Israelites' homes, so that the final plague of of striking down the firstborn would pass over them and strike only the Egyptians, the Egyptian homes, which had no such uh, covering. And so, after marking the doorposts, they were then to uh, they were then commanded to roast the lamb and eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Now, later, this uh, the uh, this kind of event was codified into uh, the, Le- the Levitical laws and was to be celebrated each year uh, by the Jews as the, uh, the Israelites as a remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt. And of course, with the the sanctuary and then later the temple. Well, things became a bit more uh, formalized. And so the Passover got to the point, especially with the building of the temple, uh, the Passover could only be celebrated in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the only place that God had appointed for sacrifices to be made. And so on the 14th day of the first, of the first month, uh, at around uh, early, in the early afternoon, the trumpets would bless, letting people know that it was time to bring the lambs for sacrifice. And so representatives of, of each family or, or group would take the lamb to the temple, where the priests would then slay the lamb, and then cast the blood of the lamb uh, at the base of the altar. The, peop- uh, the parts were then removed from the lamb. They would, the priest would remove the certain parts that were necessary for the burnt offering and then return uh, the rest of the lamb back to uh, those who brought it. And, uh, and they were then to go and, and roast it over fire and to prepare it for, uh, for the meal. And along with this, along with the lamb, would be unleavened cakes, bitter herbs, wine, and a, and a sauce of, of mashed fruit that uh, with uh, spices uh, that they would use for uh, for dipping the bread in. And then the burnt offering would be made just before sundown. And the people would then wait for the trumpet blast to signal that the meal could begin. And since the Jews accounted a, a day from sundown to sundown, well, during this week that Jesus celebrated with his disciples, preparations would have begun likely on Wednesday, and the sacrifice would have been made on Thursday afternoon with the meal uh, beginning on Thursday and then going into, uh, going into Friday. And so this day of the Passover was also the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, during this seven-day feast, so the Passover was one day, uh, but then it also began the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread, which lasted for seven days. And so during this time, all leaven or yeast had to be removed from uh, the people's homes. And they weren't to eat anything with leaven in it for the duration of the feast. And the first and the last days of that feast were special uh, Sabbaths, so that no one would do work uh, on them and there would be a special assembly of the people, obviously bringing uh, the, their lambs for the sacrifice. And well, it's important to note that though the Pharisees and the chief priests were very strict when it came to keeping the Sabbath, well, they would certainly ignore this no-work rule when in a few hours from this time they would uh, bring Jesus to trial uh, early Friday morning, and we'll look at that, Lord willing, in a few weeks. 
But the purpose of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is found in Exodus 12, verse 17. And the Lord says to Moses, So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to mark really the the day and to celebrate the day that the people were actually delivered out of, uh, out of Egypt. And so we see here that the symbolism of, of both of these feasts and their connection to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. The Passover reminded the people of their deliverance from, uh, from the plague and, and from being in bondage in Egypt. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to commemorate uh, the hardships of, of their harried flight, um, and, uh, and ultimately their deliverance out of that slavery, out of that bondage. And of course the absence of leaven was to symbolize their uh, sincere con- consecration uh, to the Lord. And so together with these celebrations, they pointed toward the deliverance that the Messiah would one day bring. Not just uh, a deliverance from, uh, from enemies, but especially the deliverance from a sin and the condemnation of death. And so all these, this, uh, these feasts look back remembering what God had done, or the first celebration obviously remembering what God was about to do, but they, they also then look forward to what the Messiah would, uh, would ultimately accomplish for his people. And so now Jesus, it's this time of year and Jesus and his disciples are there in the vicinity of Jerusalem and they're getting ready to make preparations. And so it was the first day now being upon them and of course there was much to be done. And so the disciples inquire of Jesus in verse 17, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? I want you to note here the emphasis in their question. They don't say, where do you want us to prepare the Passover for us to celebrate? But they want to prepare for you. That is, they want to prepare for Jesus the Passover. And this indicates that Jesus, they acknowledge Jesus was going to be, as their Lord and Master, he was going to be the host of this meal, that he would basically act as the head of this family. And so Jesus was was the host. They were going to prepare for him this meal. Well, Jesus proceeds to give them some rather vague instructions about how they should make preparation. He says in verse 18, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, he doesn't give them a a location or a name, but simply to go to a certain man in the city. Well, what's the problem with this? Well, there were tens of thousands of men in the city at that time. How were they to find this certain man? Well, Mark and and Luke both add in their accounts that they were to look specifically for a man carrying a jug of water. Well, that doesn't seem like it would be any more helpful. And we may wonder, well, why, why these vague instructions? Certainly it would have been much more precise for Jesus to say, well, look, I want you to go to, uh, to Levi's house across from the synagogue on 2nd Avenue. 
and then ask him if we can use his room, uh, his house, for, for this Passover. But no, the, the lack of detail here is, is very intentional. And it seems quite possible that this was a means of really protection uh, for Jesus and for his disciples. You see, Jesus was already aware what was in Judas' heart. Jesus, Jesus, uh, Jesus knew uh, all the time who his betrayer was going, uh, who his betrayer was. And if Judas knew the exact location of the meal before they arrived, well, then he could have had the opportunity to go to the priests and lead them uh, to him even before the uh, meal started. But Jesus needed to celebrate this feast with his disciples. And so he wanted to assure that his last supper with them was, uh, was not going to be interrupted. At the same time, it's very clear, though, that Jesus wasn't running away from what he knew was appointed. But there were things that needed to happen. And celebrating this supper with his disciples was one of those important things that needed to happen. Well, amazingly, the disciples, and, and again, Luke tells us in his account that it was Peter and John, well, they found this certain man, just as Jesus said. And this certain man, um, we're never told uh, exactly who he was, but he consents to the request. Likely, obviously, he was uh, probably one of Jesus' disciples there living in the city. And so they then carry out the necessary preparations for the Passover. Now, oftentimes, when we think about this, uh, this passage, it's referred to as the Last Supper. And truly, it was the Last Supper that Jesus would share with his disciples. But it would also actually be the Last Passover. See, it's true, now, true though, a, a year after the crucifixion of Jesus, yes, the Jews would have gathered together in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And even several years later, uh, we would have, uh, we find the Jews once again celebrating Passover uh, in Acts chapter 12. And of course today, the Jews continue to observe the Passover, and sadly, it's even become a common celebration for some Christians. So if the Passover is still celebrated, well, how can this event here in Matthew 26 be the last Passover uh, uh, celebration? Well, again, we have to remember what it was all about. Right? It was a time for the Jews to remember God's deliverance from Egypt and is separating them apart as a holy nation and again, that ultimately, though even this deliverance in the memorial meal pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah, who would deliver his people once and for all from their sins. Well, this Messiah has now come. Now, Jesus Christ has fulfilled the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He is the only Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb who was slain so that those who are forgiven through His shed blood would be passed over in the judgment of God at the end of the age. And now after the sacrificial death and the resurrection of Jesus, 
or the sign and the symbolism of the Passover has now clearly been fulfilled. And so the continued celebration of the Passover has really become an empty ritual. Not only for, uh, for Jewish Christians, but even really for the Jews themselves. Especially when we consider what happened in 70 AD. The Jews, since 70 AD, since the temple was destroyed, the Jews can't truly celebrate the Passover because they have no legitimate and lawful place to offer the sacrifice. It was God's way of saying, this old way is now done. The Messiah that they looked forward to has already come. And He has delivered His people from their sins. And so this is why we find these instructions by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Paul says, Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What we see here in Paul's words, he's saying, look, Christ, He was the Passover. He was the Passover lamb. He's been sacrificed. We're to put away that old leaven and really the old feast. But he mentions another feast. And the feast that we celebrate, that we're called to celebrate, isn't the Passover. It's a new feast. One that is instituted by Christ himself. And that is the feast of the Lord's Supper, as we'll consider Lord willing next week. But the celebration of the Passover has now passed. So everything here was set, though, as we return to Jesus and his disciples. Everything was set. And we see in verse 20 that when evening had come, Jesus sat down with the twelve, and they ate this last supper. And of course, Jesus, as the host, uh, likely would have shared the account of God's deliverance of his people, calling uh, them to remembrance, as was instructed in the law, how they were to celebrate the Passover. And so there was certainly a time of joyful thanksgiving, for what the Lord had done for his people. Now Jesus has already reminded his disciples, even just the the day or so before, that the time is soon coming when he would be taken from them. And so this is certainly on their minds as they celebrate this Last Supper. But of course the disciples didn't know exactly when this would happen, and perhaps they were still holding out hope that it wasn't going to happen. And so here they are, probably caught up in the moment, caught up in the celebration of of the Passover, peacefully reclining at the table, eating this meal, when Jesus makes another bombshell announcement. Verse 21, Assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now consider... All that Jesus is saying here. First he begins with, Assuredly, I say to you. What Jesus is about to tell them isn't only true, but it's, it's very, very important for them to hear. 
And of course, this is how Jesus often emphasized these kinds of things that were critical for his uh, disciples to understand, either saying assuredly, or most assuredly, or in the King James, would be verily, or verily, verily, I say unto you. Well, there's that, that repetition. It's all for emphasis. Look, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. And so you had better pay attention and listen. One of you will betray me. Now, these certainly are the most shocking words. One of you, not the Jews... Not the scribes, the chief priests, or the elders. Not the Romans. Not a vague someone. But one of you, my very close friends and companions. One who I personally called to to follow me and be my disciple. One who's traveled with me and heard my teaching and have seen all the miracles and the signs and the wonders that I've done. One who I've saved from the storm on the sea. One who I gave authority and power over unclean spirits and the ability to heal the sick. One against whom I have done no ill. One who I have not mistreated in any way, but have provided for and cared for and loved. Yes, one of you will betray me. That you will turn against me and hand me over to my enemies. Now, as early as Matthew 17, Jesus, when he was uh, made the, the first of his predictions about his coming suffering and death, Jesus had predicted that he would be betrayed and delivered up. So that part wasn't a surprise. But it's not until now that, they, that he says, who was going to do it? It was going to be one of them. And the disciples will recall the previous predictions that Jesus made. They'd understand that this betrayal would again ultimately lead to his death. Making it all the more really heinous and detestable. That one of his disciples would betray him and turn him over to his enemies so that he would be killed. Well, the disciples were obviously shaken to the core and filled with exceeding sorrow, as you see in verse 22. Could this be true? How can this be? One of us? Who? Now, amazingly, as, you know, as we've gotten to know the disciples, amazingly, the question isn't, well, tell us, Lord, who is it? Expose them now and we'll deal with them. But instead, there's a sense of, of conviction and a, and a trembling of fear as they wonder about their own hearts. As each of them asks, Lord, is it I? Now, as shocking as it is, they all realize their own weakness and their own capability of doing such a great wickedness, especially when they remember that Jesus didn't just say things for the fun of it, right? He, he didn't joke around with them. When Jesus said something was going to happen, it happened. When he cursed the fig tree, the fig tree withered. When he said, go into the city and look for this man and you're going to, you find he's going to have a, a donkey, it was there. 
When he tells the disciples, even this uh, earlier this day, go into the city and find a certain man carrying a, water, a jug of water, and he'll have a room for you. It happened. Jesus speaks the truth. And so they knew at this point that their own hearts weren't trustworthy. They knew Jesus' words were true. But they were not going to trust their own hearts. And so they each ask, Lord, is it I? Am I the betrayer? Now this ought to remind us really of the the self-examination required in preparation of celebrating the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, Paul says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. And it's very likely that this kind of, this incident that's happening at the Last Supper is is reason why Paul is giving these instructions, that the Lord gave these instructions, you've got to examine yourselves. And, and of course, this is a solemn warning. And sadly, it's one that's, that's taken far too lightly in the church today, which is certainly one of the reasons that we encourage members to take time to prepare themselves and to examine themselves before partaking in the Lord's Supper. Examine yourself. To see if there is any offense. To see if your heart is right with God. Does anyone partake who is a betrayer of their professed faith? And who in their heart denies Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior? One feigning to be in union and communion with Christ and His church? It's certainly very possible. And so the warning and the caution of judgment is quite severe. We must examine ourselves. And as we look at it here, Judas certainly wasn't discerning the Lord's body. But notice, Jesus gives nothing more explicit to identify the betrayer. Right? They're, they're struggling with this. They don't know who it is. They're wondering, is it me? Am, am I the one? They're examining themselves. But instead of the, giving them more uh, clarifying information, Jesus does just the opposite and and really continues to to push all the disciples toward this self-examination. And he does so, and as he does so, he also further highlights really just how treacherous this betrayal will be. As he says, well, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Okay, well... How's that going to help identify the betrayer? Because at this point, they have all dipped their hands in the dish with him. Right? They've all been sharing this meal together. And it was certainly a common to share the same bowl. This was likely the, uh, referring to that, that bowl of mashed fruit that they would dip the bread in. Well, everybody was dipping in. Right? It's like you have a, you're at a, at a party and there's a bowl of, of salsa and everybody's got chips and everybody's dipping in. So it's not specific. But again, it allows the reality 
of what Jesus has just said to them to truly sink in, to really sink deeply into their own hearts. But again, it also emphasizes really the depth of the betrayal. See, sharing a meal together was very intimate. Especially this meal where they were gathered together as a family. And we remember that Jesus was serving as as the host of the meal. He's, He's invited them to join with him. And in the culture of the ancient Near East, it, was, it would be a great insult to offend your host, let alone betray him. And so this, again, amplifies the degree of, of treachery of what's about to happen. But it also fulfills the scriptures. In Psalm 41, verse 9 Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Beloved of God, the Psalms really do speak about Jesus and his life, his ministry, even his suffering and his death. Even this betrayal by Judas is prophesied about here in Psalm 41. And again, it highlights for us the very real and the very personal suffering that Jesus endured on our behalf. Right? It wasn't just the physical pain of, of the abuse that he was going to receive at the hands of, of, the, of the soldiers and the, uh, the, the chief priests. It wasn't just the pain that he endured the intense pain that he endured on the cross. It was even this violent rupture of a close relationship, of a close friendship that he suffered. Why did he do, why did this happen this way? Well, it's so that he might be better equipped to identify with us. We've ever been betrayed by someone, someone close. Well, look, Jesus can identify with us. And so he is then able to minister to us in our time of need. Of course, sometimes when we think about someone betraying us, well, if we're honest with ourselves, we may, we may be able to evaluate the situation and say, well, okay, I probably should have done this better and and this, and I maybe was partially at fault. But Jesus, he had no guilt. He endured this betrayal. He, He did nothing to harm Judas. And so this betrayal is against this just and righteous man. Again, making it all the more Horrible and despicable. Well, Jesus then goes on to add a warning in verse 24. He says, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. Again, that's from Psalm 41. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been uh, better for that man if he had not been born. Now that is pretty severe. 
Jesus is basically saying here that because of this one deed of betrayal, the rest of this betrayer's life was, was really worthless and pointless. And of course, this from the one who is ultimately the creator of life and the one who gives life as a gift to all. But for the betrayer, the miserable life that he lived is going to pale in comparison to the eternal judgment that will fall upon him for this great treachery. And so it would have been better for him to not have existed at all. And so that thought begins to sink in. So what are the disciples thinking? What's Judas thinking? His treacherous plot has been revealed, although no one really knows yet that it's him. But we know that Jesus knows. Did this weight weigh upon Judas at all? Was his heart seared with, with sorrow and conviction over his sin and, and his plan to betray Jesus? And certainly now would it be the, the, the best time to come clean and repent. Right? Especially after this most severe warning. Judas, it would have been better if you had not been born at all than to, be, to endure the, the judgment that you're going to endure for this great sin that you'll commit. But it almost seems as if Judas wanted to test Jesus. Okay, so he knows that one of the twelve is going to betray him, but, but does he know who? Does, does he know it's me? And so in verse 25, Judas asks, Rabbi, is it I? Now this is a bold move on Judas' part. But we can already notice a difference in his heart and how he asks. See, the others refer to Jesus as Lord and Master. Lord, is it I? And that reveals their hearts and, and how they're viewing their relationship with Jesus. But Judas uses the much less intimate rabbi or teacher. You see, he's rejected Jesus as his Lord and Master. And he's already has begun to distance himself from Jesus in order to make his wicked plan easier to carry out. Now, likely unheard by everyone else, Jesus affirms, You've said it. And it appears from, at least from John's account, it's unclear from the other accounts, but it appears at this point is when Judas got up and left the gathering to then go and carry out this great sin. It would have been better if Judas had not been born for the eternal judgment that he would now endure was going to be very, very severe. But he was born. And indeed, he had to be born. Otherwise, the scriptures wouldn't have been fulfilled and the eternal decree of God wouldn't have come about. 
And this raises some important questions about the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And we know Scripture is very clear that Jesus was going to suffer. And we have all these prophecies. I think of, I always mention Psalm 41. There's Isaiah 53 uh, talking about the suffering that the Messiah would endure. And that he was going to be put to death for our sins. Again, not only has it been written, that is in fulfillment of the Scriptures, but also because it was decreed to occur by God before the foundation of the world. And John reminds us of this great truth in Revelation 13, verse 8, where he refers to Jesus as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Part of that decree was that in his suffering, Jesus would be betrayed by his close friend, one who ate bread with him. Again, Psalm 41. And so it had to happen this way. But we also have to take into account the guilt of the sinner. See, Judas is is guilty. And indeed, his guilt is more pronounced because even at this very late hour, he didn't repent, even though he was confronted with his sin. Judas willfully acted in accordance with his own sin nature. Judas was responsible. No one made him do this. He wasn't, though, a true disciple of Christ. Now, outwardly, he certainly put on a good show. But inwardly, his heart was bent on serving himself and doing evil. But his nature was sinful. And so he could only do sin. He had no regenerating grace, no life-giving spirit, even though he was in close fellowship and and a card-carrying member of Jesus' inner circle. He was one who was completely and totally dead in his sins and transgressions, never to be revived again. And so Judas had real guilt and responsibility. Now God, in His perfect sovereign plan, though, is able to use even the sins of the most sinful men to bring about His purpose and decree. And this remains, that's can't really much say much more about it. God is sovereign and, plan, he, and, and purposed it and planned it. Judas is, is responsible. This is what the Scriptures tell us. They, this is what they reveal to us. We have to accept This is a great mystery. Regarding God's decree of predestination, which obviously this all entails, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, verse 8, says the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in His Word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, of reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the Gospel. And so we may not fully understand it. And indeed, we can't fully understand it. But we know what the Scriptures teach. God is always 
just and right. And He is sovereign over all things. And Judas is a guilty sinner who will be held accountable for his sin. That's the truth of what the Scriptures teach. And so, brothers and sisters, what do we glean from this and from these events of the Last Supper? Well, first we acknowledge and give thanks, really for the great wonder that is our salvation. That in Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, we have true salvation from sin and the condemnation of death and eternal punishment. It's a glorious thing that, that God chose a little lamb to be a symbol of deliverance from bondage and rather than a, a great army. Because even that reminds us that salvation belongs to the Lord God alone and is accomplished by His grace, not by our works. And this isn't just some ancient religious teaching uh, that has no bearing upon us today in the 21st century. Men and women are still held in bondage to sin today. And whether they acknowledge it or not, they're in the grips of Satan. They're still in great need of deliverance. But the good news, the gospel, is that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You can also stand amazed at the truth which Jesus spoke. It reminds us that all that He has given to us in His Word, all the hopes and the promises, all the prophetic signs and wonders, even all the curses and the coming judgment, all these will indeed come to pass just as Jesus told us. It's a true blessing that we have. The Scriptures to tell us these things. Let's also give thanks that our God is truly sovereign over all things. And this should bring great comfort to the hearts of those who trust in Him. Because we know that whatever happens, whether it's something good or, or something evil, we know that whatever happens, God will work out those things for our good and for His glory. But we should also humble ourselves and wonder at the great mystery of God's eternal decree that He has appointed whatsoever comes to pass. And yet, He still holds man accountable for his sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. And He will righteously judge sinful man accordingly. Yet God is even able to use man's sinful actions to accomplish His foreordained will and purpose. Nothing can thwart the plan and purpose of God. And finally, we ought to rejoice and give thanks that another great mystery has now been revealed. That God who abounds with grace and mercy freely offers the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ to undeserving sinners. That through the suffering and death of Christ, those who were dead in sins and transgressions might be made alive to everlasting life through Him to the glory of God alone. Let's pray.
Oh, gracious God in heaven, we praise you and thank you for the truth of your word. And even as we've considered many uh, challenging things and mysteries that we can't fully comprehend, but we trust in you as we were reminded in, uh, in Psalm 115, to, we're your people, you saved us and delivered us, we, we must trust in you, we trust in your word, because your word is truth, your word is life. And then if we reject that truth, we have no hope. We have no certainty or assurance. So we just pray, Lord, that in our, in our weakness, that your spirit would strengthen us, helping us to cling to the promises and the truth of your word, even when we don't fully understand some of these things. And we just praise you and thank you for what you have accomplished for us. That Jesus Christ, your, own, your only begotten Son, is truly the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And that through His suffering and death on the cross, we now have the forgiveness of sins. And we now have peace and reconciliation with You. And that You now call us to live as He lived. Seeking truth and righteousness. Pursuing holiness. Seeking to live for your glory and your praise in all things. And so we ask, Father, that your spirit would impress these truths upon each of our hearts. Drawing us all closer to yourself. So that we would truly be faithful servants living for your glory. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.